Hello and welcome back to uh, another episode of the CrossFit Harrow podcast. We are episode number one and we have Georgina in today. Georgina, thank you for joining us. First question that always goes out is, why CrossFit Harrow? What brought you here? Uh, so my brother does a lot of CrossFit okay. up, up in Leeds um, and he, he's done it for about two years now. I absolutely loved it, I was raving about it and I'd always been really tempted to do it. Um, and then I moved up here. I used to live over in East London and found you guys online, basically, and seemed really welcoming. I had a really good, you know, no sweat intro with subs and everything, yeah. and uh, haven't really looked back since. That was at the beginning of this year. It's been, been really good. Nice. And then what, what, what has always been like, you've always been around sports, have you not so much been around sports? I've, I've always loved sports. Yeah. So uh, when I was younger, I was on kind of any team going, basically, you know, played hockey, tennis, athletics um and uh kind of that carried on a bit in university but then it slowed down a little bit uh i put on a bunch of weight at uni you know i was drinking too much eating the wrong things all of that um and then i guess got more into kind of long distance running that sort of thing uh after that um but realized actually for kind of my joints and all of that i needed to be a bit more Mm. varied in what i was doing yeah um, so I tried lots of other things um, and still like to do lots of other things like yoga, uh, triathlon, do loads of cycling, all of that. But um, CrossFit's stuck, I think, because there's so much variability in, in what you actually do. Um, and it feels really good for your mobility in particular. And that's something I've always struggled with. Yeah, um, but, uh, but yeah, I've always liked to try and keep fit. Nice. Um, and yeah. you've recently taken part in a uh, quite a big, um, distance is that was that running? Yeah, yeah. So I did my first ultra marathon uh, a couple of weeks ago. What, what is the distance of an ultra marathon? It's basically anything above a marathon. So um, I've done I've done a few marathons before, uh, but this is my fir- first ultra, and it's thirty six miles um, up in uh, Leeds. Uh, again, uh, that's where it originally from, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I'm, uh, from um, Wakefield, just near, just near Leeds. Is that um, where, that's where they film? Uh, is that where they film um, on the soaps? They film on the soaps there. I don't know which one. <laughs> Do they film one of the soaps there? I'm, is it, I is don't it, know. Where's Corrie? That's Manchester. Isn't Corrie, it? that's my yeah, other There's side the other of the Pennines. Um, never mind. <laughs> Whatever the other one is. But no, there's. There's a big prison in Wakefield. That's what oh, people usually yeah. That's what people usually know it for. Um, that or you kind of go for it from the train from London to, to York. But um, but no. So I did, I did my first ultra, and um, again it was my brother that got me into it. He's um, he did his first one just at the beginning of the summer. Absolutely loved it. Um, and that was just from doing like he had he trained for that, or was it just off the cuff? He wanted to do it because you guys have been talking about it. He um, so. He actually got diagnosed with uh, um, arthritis okay. like a couple of years ago, and um, I think his his mindset was that he, he wanted to do this stuff well you know whilst he still could and he uh, didn't have too much pain in his hips and his knees, um, and he had he had to have a hip operation um, at the beginning of. Uh, last year so there's loads of rehab and stuff associated with that so as soon as he was fit enough again he he just he started setting himself challenges and everything and I you know I was really motivated by that as well and and wanted to be there and you know it'd be a fun thing to do for us to like train yeah. together Gave and you stuff. a little bit of inspiration I guess. Yeah definitely definitely um, and he, he's he's got so into it and he's 
he's a really like motivated guy you know he sets himself a goal and he'll, he'll go for it whereas you know I'll try and do that but I'm I'm probably a little bit um less kind of disciplined <laughs> um but anyway so yeah really really did train for for the ultra and uh it was a brilliant experience it was through like um it was a trail ultra all around uh, Otley kind of um Basically on the border of like North Yorkshire and West Yorkshire. Was so it a map that you route? Was it a route that you mapped out? No, they basically gave you the GPX and you had to kind of find it yourself. But at some points of it, you literally on your hands and knees because it was. Oh really? It was the elevation was absolutely nuts. Um, it took took me nine hours. Wow. I was probably like in the bottom bottom third, <laughs> but um, uh, it was brilliant. And like the the main thing that got me through it was knowing that my body will be all right like I can, I can get to the end I know that I'm strong enough to do that but um it was just all it was all a mental game really but yeah. but um no it's definitely and I'm already looking at like the next challenge and that was my next question I'm like <laughs> when are you, when are you going to do the next have you signed up for the next one are you looking um I'm looking for so the company that we did it with uh, they do loads of ultras like around Yorkshire and stuff so I might end up doing one of those but um I'm now looking at Ironman next year oh, wow. um which, which, yeah, I mean, that's something that you just have to dedicate your whole life to, to like even be ready to kind of be at the start line. But uh, yeah, it'd be brilliant. So I'm, I'm maybe thinking about uh, one in Nottingham, which is like in July, end of July next year. Would the biggest uh, or the hardest um, out of the three be the swim for you? Definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you swim? I, I can swim. Um, and I swam a bit like in junior school and stuff. And so that was all fine. But um, swimming's so technical yeah. like it's so so technical and uh, I just I haven't I haven't found the most efficient way to swim and so it just it feels so hard like I did I did my first triathlon this year as well and uh, was that full distance triathlon? that was uh, sprint okay. so what was that 750 so, yeah. metres swim uh, 20k bike and then 5k, 5K run cycling absolutely smashed it you know was was felt really really good because you would go run. on cycles regularly don't you yeah, yeah I love I love cycling it's yeah. yeah loads of fun um run was absolutely fine felt really good but the swim I was a full like eight minutes slower than you know other people my age and um I just I don't know what it is I and mean, yeah so I need to that's probably the thing that I want to improve H- had you had lessons like going into that or was just like you to improve that would it be something that you consider doing having lessons yeah going into the try uh, yeah the, don't... the uh Ironman yeah, definitely. Because as I say, it's it's so technical, and you know, like brute strength is only going to get you so, so far. far. So, yeah. um, I think I'll probably end up looking for a coach or something mm. for just for the swimming element um, next year. But but we'll see. The the other thing was that I'd never done open water swimming before. Yeah, we've we've spoke about this a couple of times on the podcast, and it is hard. Yeah, it is very very hard. Yeah, definitely. I mean, but amazing. As I say, you know, I was. Did it for the first time this year and like where know, did you do it uh there's a place up at merchant taylor's school oh, yeah, 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 yeah. um you know and guys that run it are lovely and um yeah but you just you know you're just kind of paddling about and then you look over and there's like a massive bird to your left kind of thing and you know it's just it's just really i find it really freeing and like lovely to be just kind of in good nature in, yeah, in that yeah, environment yeah. um so it's really good but it is so hard and you don't have you know, you don't have the luxury of the side of the pool to like just have that, that little rest. That was my biggest fear. Yeah, I, I when I done it, I struggled like touching. I have to be able to touch the sides of the floor or something. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you just you just have to swim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> have you done much open water swimming? Uh, once. 
once. Right. Uh, I don't think I'll ever do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Fair uh, enough. It was yeah. a random day. Uh, it was, I went to uh, Windsor. There's a place uh, oh, yeah. in Windsor. I can't yeah. remember what it's called. Um, uh, it's one of my friends that used to come here. And uh, she said, fancy open water swim. And I had shorts on that were swim shorts, but not swim shorts. They yeah. materialised. I thought, yeah, just bring me a towel and goggles. I'll be good to go. <laughs> and I'm not the strongest swimmer. Um, I can swim. Yeah. Uh, but I, uh, yeah, near death experience for me. Really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I pan- like just panicked. The fact I couldn't touch the the, uh, the sides, I couldn't touch the bottom. I can't tread water either. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Which is strange. I can swim, but I can't tread water. Yeah. I just my body doesn't float. Right. So I don't think I'll be doing it back in a hurry. I definitely need swimming lessons. Yeah. Um, in order to. To, to do, even if I want to do a triathlon properly, I'd have to do some lessons. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's the biggest fear. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. But the, the whole um, floating thing, there is a thing called negative buoyancy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I, I keep saying that my body's not designed to float, people just laugh at me. Yeah, no, me and my brother say the same thing. Because it right. is the same. No, because... Uh, like, at least I, there's more than, one, there's more <laughs> than one of us, yeah. Yeah, yeah and they, just, they say, no, you're just not good at swimming, but it's, no, yeah. it's definitely a thing. Um, let's talk about <laughs> um, your 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 job and, and kind of where you've gone through career-wise. What at uni? What did you study? Um... Uh, so I studied uh, a bachelor's in politics and sociology at okay. Newcastle uh, University, um, which was yeah loads and loads of fun and included a, a half a year in uh, Oslo, uh, where we did loads of um, studying about international development and. Uh, yeah, basically just got a lot of kind of political economy stuff and, and all of that. But that, that kind of got me interested in uh, working in the third sector, in the charity sector, um, but more importantly doing stuff that um, had a sense of social justice to it, I suppose. Um, and then after that I went and did a Master's uh, of Science in, at Manchester Uni in Poverty and Development, so kind of carried on the international development. Uh, stuff and after that I, I mean I graduated when kind of recession hit and there weren't really many jobs out there, out there so like loads of other people I did lots of internships and lived at home and was like you know applying for like three jobs a day that yeah. kind of thing um, anyway but I did uh, internships with the British Red Cross uh, okay. Oxfam did a little bit of stuff with um, Action Aid as well uh, before landing um, well that was I suppose it was a kind of short term job with um a, uh, a membership organisation in Brussels that uh, lobbied and campaigned on international development issues, but directed at kind of EU institutions. Okay. Um, that was loads of fun, um, and loved having the opportunity to work abroad as well, and um, you know, getting immersed in in, the, in all the kind of nuts and bolts of uh, European Union policy was. Really Is it very different from the, from England and from Britain? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the even just the way things like the European Parliament are set up, it's a lot more transparent um, in terms of a kind of policy making process and um, and an engagement process. Like, it, it just was a little bit more accessible to kind of see an MEP than it is to try and get a bit of time with an MP. Yeah. I'd say. Um, uh, and there's, you know, there's, there's kind of less tradition and stuff attached to it. You've got things like electronic voting and stuff, whereas here you've got people walking down corridors to, yeah, yeah. to vote. So, yeah, it's totally different, um, totally different in terms of like a culture and everything. But 
but both really, really interesting to me. Um, and after that, I worked at a public affairs firm for a little bit. Um, that was more kind of working with the private health sector to basically uh, lobby used EU institutions again, but on kind of uh, stuff related to how medicines are appraised and, and made available, um, which was fantastic. Like I learned loads during that process, but didn't really sit well with my soul. You know, I wanted to go back to third sector um, and I was ready to come back to the UK at that point as well. So I moved back to London and uh, started work initially at the MS Society. I was there for about six and a half years. Uh, and then was uh, started this job in January of last year, uh, where I've run a small charity that that campaigns and lobbies on yeah. uh, policies to do with services for people with the neurological n- neurological alliance. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it it lives close to your heart, really. Is why you kind of got into it, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, my mum was diagnosed with uh, MS, multiple sclerosis, when I was really young. So uh, I've, I've never really known life without kind of MS in it. Okay. Uh, I was three. Um, she's actually been able to live like really well with it. Um, she's, you know, she, she's kept active, uh, kept kind of mentally and physically active. Uh, and so, you know, really mobile. And I don't think she would say MS affects her really, like day, day to day. And, and she did get good support from... Uh, you know, uh, physiotherapists in particular. Um, and she also had some friends that had had similar experiences and I think that really helped her. Um, but on the other side, you know, my uh, uncle, he was in a uh, really nasty car accident when I was in my late teens, um, left him with permanent uh, kind of brain injuries uh, and ended up, you know, uh, not being able to look after himself and living out the rest of his days in, in a care home. Um, but, you know, both just gave me really kind of first-hand experience of what, what the difference that good care can make. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, it, you know, it, I'm now working in a job where I'm, I'm trying to make sure that everybody that might experience these things get as good, good uh, care as possible. Yeah. Um, and that's really rewarding and, and it, yeah, it means a lot. I like to think it's making a little bit of a difference. difference. You know. Job satisfaction must be, like, through the roof, right? Yeah, yeah. This, I mean, there's annoying stuff as well, but, Absolutely. you know, um, as with every job, but uh, that's the bit that I enjoy the most is, is kind of, well, interacting with people that might be living with neurological conditions and, and just hearing their experiences and uh, making sure that they're at the forefront of everything that we're doing. But um, also, you know, th- there's nothing quite like knowing that you've landed kind of an important argument with the right person at the right time and, and been able to make a little change in public policy and that, that's that's hugely rewarding. You, you say they're at the right time because I, I I think that, you know, a lot of people know like in those positions that can change things, mm. probably know a lot of this stuff that goes on with the lack of maybe funding, like we'll go through the different things that it challenges might face, but until it happens maybe to someone close to them, mm they might not see that actually the benefit of whatever that thing is that you're trying to in, improve or bring in. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's um, it's, it's so, so individual as mm. well in, t- in terms of just... 
Because everyone's needs in that case, well, everyone's needs everywhere, anywhere are different, but especially yeah. in, in those cases, right? Yeah, exactly. And that, that's not always a clinical thing. It might be because, um, you know, they don't have the right um, support networks around them to help them kind of process a really difficult diagnosis, yeah. or they might not um, have the information they need to kind of navigate what can be a really, really difficult and complex health and care system. Um, and, you know, so getting all that stuff right, though, is just so, so important. You know, I hear from just so many really inspiring and, and fantastic individuals um, who have had these kind of life-changing diagnoses. Um, and they, yeah, they, they've been able to get the right support. They've had people that have listened to them. They've been able to connect to people that have had similar experiences. They were able to get services when they need it and, and all of that. And it, it just, it, it really, really matters. Um, and, you know, there's lots of societal benefit to it as well, to, you know, for, to people, uh, not just with neurological conditions, but, but lots of uh, other long-term conditions, getting the right support. And so, um, you know, I, I think that's quite a compelling argument yeah, for yeah. change. <laughs> how, much, how much support is actually out there for those with neurological conditions? It's really, really dependent on, on lots of things. So um, to give you an example, the, the, there are some treatment options available for like progressive neurological conditions like MS that might mean that it slows down uh, the rate at which like your mobility might be declining or uh, you know help with your cognition or that sort of thing. So the stuff that you can do, whereas, um, and, and there's kind of medicines available for that. And so that might mean that there's, there's services available to you and you'll be kind of seen within the service and all of that. Uh, there are other conditions where we don't have a huge amount that we can do other than provide much needed kind of psychological support or, um, you know, pain alleviation, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I've heard of some really horrible stuff where services just come totally overwhelmed, particularly at the moment. Um, and so people are being, you know, discharged earlier than they ought to be um, because of yeah because of the lack of options that might be available mm. um but you know there are some places in in the uk that are doing this stuff really really well um almost you know ac across the board and um it, it's just that that doesn't exist everywhere um especially not in kind of i don't know like outside of london it can be hard to recruit kind of the right specialists and stuff um, is that because there's thing. a lack of funding and a lack of awareness yeah, funding's a big funding's a big thing. I mean, um, neurology typically hasn't been kind of top of the political agenda either. So we, you know, you don't tend to get large kind of sums of money um, committed at budget, or uh, uh, so that's that's always a really would, big would challenge. Would that be but, would that be from government? Would that be from private in, in investors? Or I say, you know, donations really, as opposed to investors. Oh, see, see what you mean, but. Um, Government is, government's a big one. So, you know, to give you an example, we don't have like a national clinical director for neurology, despite there being one in six that live with a neurological condition. So that, that means that we don't necessarily have uh, kind of a natural uh, focal point for... Someone shouting for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like baked within the system. And it's so, so important that you have that. We don't have things like a national plan to improve services, despite there being, I mean, there's so much really exciting innovation on the way, like we should have a new, uh, we might have a new, I should say, uh, disease modifying therapy for Alzheimer's in the next couple of years. That's going to change demand on services like massively, but at the moment there's not, not a chance that 
uh, every service across the UK would be able to deliver mm. that. Um, but, uh, you know, so it's just, it's typically not had a huge amount of political attention or funding, and that undoubtedly translates into um, unwarranted variation in, in kind of what, what exists. Um, so I guess my job is, because I, I, I kind of, I see all this stuff going through the pipeline, particularly kind of treatments and interventions coming through, um, uh, and just think, this is fantastic, this could really transform people's lives, but we, we absolutely need to make sure we've got the right people and the right you know, space and, and investment to make sure people benefit from it. Um, yeah. And I think we're slowly starting to win that argument, but it just takes time. Is it also hard finding specialists to work in that area too? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, that. that's kind of, there's a lot of kind of complexities to that, but um, I think there's something about making sure that there's good opportunities for people to to kind of train up, and that the the specialty of, of kind of neurology is is visible as people are like going through medicine and, and all that sort of thing. Um, uh, and also, the kind of demands on the job are changing. So, typically, for example, you've, there's been a kind of historic split between like stroke services, neurology services, and dementia services. They're all kind of concerned with the brain and spine and um, uh, but that means you're, you're also kind of dividing the, the kind of potential people that could be working on those things. Yeah. So, you know, th- there's a big push at the moment to to try and bring some of those disciplines a little bit more closely aligned and make sure that as people are being trained up through the system that they're getting a flavour for kind of dementia and neurology and stroke as uh, so it's all kind of coming together, which I think I think is really encouraging, but there's a lot of kind of history that I won't even attempt to fully understand. Um, where, where, will we ever? Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. But um, but no, it's it's coming through. And then you've got things like neurosurgery, for example. We have absolutely no problem with the number of neurosurgeons coming okay. through. There's a lot, of, a lot of interest, but what we don't have is a space. Right. Like there aren't enough ITU beds, for example, after somebody's had a, a you know, operation, that sort of thing, in, in some areas. So it, it depends on the... It depends on the problem, depends on the specialty, but yeah. It must be quite difficult then to balance um, balance those people that need that support more more than others, or you know, who requirements are a little bit greater. They might be some, are they some of the daily challenges as well that you might not directly deal with, but in hospitals they might they might. Yeah, I, I definitely think that uh, you know co- colleagues in in services are having to make really difficult decisions about. Um, how they spend their time and um, particularly at the moment when you think about just like the number of people waiting at the moment for um, for an appointment in a hospital is like skyrocketing. It I think it's more than 5 million Yeah, I was going to say like 5.6 million people on a wait list. Yeah. I saw yeah. that yesterday. Yeah, it's absolutely massive. I mean, in neurology alone, it was around about uh, it was around about 100 kind of before the pandemic hit um, that, uh, 100 people that have been waiting more than a year for a neurology appointment. Um, it's now more than 2,500. So, you know, it's like thousands of percent increase, basically. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, you know, clinicians are having to think, well, who, who do we bring in first? Um, who's got the most urgent needs? And that, you know, if you think about it, if you're on a waiting list as well, that wait isn't static. Like, yeah. you know, if you've got a suspected neurological condition, like that could be impacting in so many ways. It could be progressing more quickly um, as well. And Really sadly, we know that for some uh, for some conditions, that the sooner you get treated, the better. Um, and and but you know there are 
lengthy waits just because the capacity is not there in the system. So I, re I really do sympathise with, with what, clinicians what, who are having to make those decisions. What could a, um, what could a, uh, a day to day person uh, who's not involved do to raise awareness, to help support? What is anything that uh, the public can do? Oh, loads. There's, uh, <laughs> well, there's loads. So, the, so my organisation is like a membership organisation okay. for for um, charities that work to support people with neurological conditions. Uh, so people like the MS Society, Sue Ryder, Parkinson's UK, MNDA, uh, and they have. Uh, there's loads of ways that you can support them. Be it kind of you might want to run a marathon for them, you might want to uh, volunteer for them. Um, you could do some. Um, really, really interesting, cool stuff like, you know, volunteer to be part of their helpline, to listening to people when they need it most. Um, you can campaign for change as well, um, you know, so you can sign up to uh, things like their campaigns community and, and, you know, write to Boris or whoever it might be to, to kind of try and get their attention. Um, so it depends, but, you know, there's so much that people can give. There are give. plenty of ways, yeah. Definitely. And, well, it comes back to that thing. Everybody's individual. Everybody's got loads of different skills they can offer. But just even even two minutes of your time can make yeah. a big difference. Yeah. And you're part of a wider community. You know? Even starting the conversation, really, to raise raise that awareness to that person, to another person, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely. I would assume that some people, you know, maybe in extreme cases, might have GoFundMe pages where they need that financial support too. Yeah. I'm sure that would be somewhere out there. Yeah, no, there's there's definitely stuff that goes on um, there as well, particularly for, you know, th there's treatments that maybe aren't available or here yet, or um, there's been lots of stuff in the news about like the use of medicinal cannabis, that sort of thing, in, in um, uh, amongst like children with epilepsy. And, um, there's lots of people that will uh, set up those fundraising pages because it, well, because they're not able to get it through the NHS yeah. or, or pay for it privately. So, yeah. If you could absolutely change something tomorrow about it, the the situation, what would you change? That's a good question. That's a tough question. <laughs> That's an on the spot question. <laughs> what would be the biggest thing that, or even the top three biggest things that you would implement or, or maybe change straight away to to access more support or information or? So, um, I think a really big thing that I'm very passionate about is I would invest far more in social care. Um, and that, that's not just, you know, obviously for people with neurological conditions, but uh, the social care system here in England is, is broken, undoubtedly, and people are paying, still selling the houses for care um, uh, and, uh, you know, paying through the nose for care that might not be more than kind of 15 minute visits. So it doesn't really meet their needs. So, a properly, you know, reformed social care system that has urgent funding to back it up would be kind of asnable one. Second would be investing in our workforce. You know, they've gone through a hell of a lot over lockdown and mm. over COVID. Uh, they're feeling the strain. I think there's going to be an awful lot of early retirement as well. So, you know, we need to make sure that we've got a decent plan to, to recruit the right people, but also to make sure that they, they feel supported to kind of stick around. Um, and I guess the final thing would be so many of my members have been hit really, really hard by COVID. You know, some of them have lost about 40% of their income over the last year. Um, there's been a bit of funding made available through kind of emergency funds, that sort of thing, through government. And grant makers have been really generous in many cases. But to be honest with you, the charity sector is still struggling um, and they 
you know, they step in when the state isn't there, right? Um, so, you know, really valuing the, the sector and making sure that they're, they've got the, the funding and support necessary to, to provide really, really vital information to people. Yeah. A plan around that would be great. I would imagine over the whole COVID scenario that funding uh, to, or, or donations to charities probably reduced quite a lot, right? Dramatically. Yeah. yeah, oh, hugely. So, yeah, the 40% figure, that was about... We did a survey of um, other health and care charities right at the beginning of lockdown, and on average they were predicting that they were going to lose about 40%. And then um, our membership to our body is income assessed, and we can see uh, that people have kind of dropped bands as well because, you know, they've, they've lost money and they've lost people as well. Yeah. That's, that's the other thing I don't think that people get is that, or it's perhaps not widely known, is that, you know, if you volunteer for a charity uh, like Sea Rider, for example... Chances are you have a personal connection to a neurological condition or you might have one yourself. Um, and they're precisely people that might well have had to be shielding or uh, been particularly isolated yeah. or whatever. And, um, you know, if it's, so, you know, the volunteer kind of workforce, one of a better word, has also been through an awful lot. Um, and there's been loads of money because shops are lost, because shops have been closed, marathons haven't been run. Yeah, yeah. Um, investors are losing money as well, you know, because there's, there's a broader kind of economic downturn coming. So, it's, yeah, it's really hard, really hard mm. times. <laughs> hopefully, Sorry. hopefully that we people can, from this, uh, with the, the different levels of support, or, or um, they can start to help in some way, shape or form. Yeah, yeah. It just definitely. takes that small step, right? Yeah, definitely. And it's fantastic to, you know, to be able to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On, it, on, on this sort of thing as yeah, well. Yeah, unless you know? it's brought up sometimes, like maybe just like through day to day, we don't realise a lot of the other stuff that, you know, we don't see around us because like you said, there's generally a personal connection. Yeah. Um, and I would imagine that obviously, before, as I said, the job satisfaction is quite high, but maybe not so many people wanting to get into it because they don't have that experience with working with someone who has that condition or maybe it doesn't offer them the best career, like and people go different ways for those reasons, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. But chances are, if I think about, you know, people that come here, for example, yeah. like, I, I would expect most people would know somebody who mm. has some sort of neurological condition but haven't necessarily, you know, even something like migraine, that sort of thing. Well, you don't even know. know how to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Don't necessarily know how to talk about it and um, might not realise that there are others out there that are experiencing similar yeah. things. So it's yeah. good to talk about it. Um, I want to talk about um, inclusivity and being a part of the LGBTQ uh, community. Yeah. There was a plus. I was just make, making sure I was reading it right. There was an I on the end. I didn't. I've never seen the I on the end. But I've actually never spoken about it. So. Okay. Uh, and it's actually quite good for audience and myself to learn a little bit more. Yeah. What does it mean being part of the LGBTQ community? Uh, what does it mean? I mean. For me personally, it means a lot, um, you know, to, to know that I am part. So I'm a gay woman and, you know, I'm very proudly a gay woman. It's taken me a long time to be able to yeah. kind of say it like that. Um, but uh, again, similar to kind of the neurological community, really, like knowing that you're, you're part of something bigger and that you're not you're not weird or, or anything for, you know, feeling how, how you might feel is just so, so important. And inclusive spaces are really, really important to that. Has, has feeling like that, has that stemmed from like childhood or is that like later on in life where you understood that you felt that you was gay to, in that sense? 
so I I didn't really know what was going on. I, I didn't. <laughs> I, I I came out when I was kind of at university. Uh, Which is the term is is insane. Well, it's, even as I'm saying, it's kind of silly because. I, one of the things I always think is it's not like you just kind of come out and it's like it's one big thing <laughs> yeah. and it's like ta-da I'm here world but because um, <laughs> you, you never you never stop coming out like that it just because it's new know. to a lot of people some people still don't understand the concept they don't get it they're against it or they just don't understand yeah exactly and you just you meet new people all the time yeah. your circumstances change all the time um, and so I think it's just that over time you become or I've found at least that I've become just more comfortable with just saying, oh, you know, my partner, she does this, right? you know, but, you know, just not making a big thing about it. And I, but I think because there's that thing of you coming out all the time, you know, it's so, so important that, um, you know, for people to be an ally and to, uh, to and for inclusive spaces to, to exist because, it becomes a safe space mm. then. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I have had some kind of nasty experiences. It, it used to kind of really offend me, but I've, no, I've now got to a point where it's like, no, it's not a problem within me. It's, it's their, yeah, it's it's their thing, it's their disturbance, yeah. not, not my... I, I was going to ask that, like, you know, over the years, have you found that you've been discriminated against because of, have you had experiences that have been very negative or affected you? Um, maybe, maybe more so when you were younger as opposed to now. Yeah, I mean... the probably the worst I, I think overall I've probably been quite lucky um, but the worst was like I was out with my then um, girlfriend I, I was actually out in Vegas like on the strip we went to a bunch of casinos and stuff um, and these two these two guys started hitting on me and my uh, girlfriend anyway and they uh, we explained that we were gay and together and like they just started laying into us and like screaming at us on the middle of this casino floor and you know people that have been on slot machines for like 24 hours <laughs> finally just kind of turning their head and um and and you know seeing what was that you know that that was awful but then it, it and we were really shocked and I like I, you know I remember just crying on in this casino and everything it was, it was horrible but after that kind of processing it's like well no it's not really my problem like as in they, they've got an issue it's not, not it's, yeah, really, yeah, yeah. it's really not me I think that was when how old was I? I was about like 24 or something 25 and I think that was quite a big turning point for me because like prior to that you know I'd been in relationships and I hadn't told my friends and family for ages um you know and I, I look back on that and I feel really guilty about yeah, it yeah, yeah definitely because I felt a lot of shame um, and I don't, I don't know where that came from, other than I came from, I guess, quite a traditional family, and um, you know, was I it did, early eighties that grew up, or mid eighties, or less, or nineties, uh, so uh, early nineties, early nineties, yeah. So I'm I'm thirty three. Okay. Um, and yeah, my so my family like is that's the thing then definitely not homophobic or anything like that not particularly religious or anything like that either but um i used to have uh, an uncle on my um i think my dad's side of the family who was gay but it wasn't really talked about it was just one of the kind of a hush hush thing and he actually was a victim of kind of um, the aids crisis over, over in the u.s but that wasn't really it was always just kind of under the coat and nobody really talked about yeah. it and i think uh because late, that, 80s, late 80s early 90s like yeah. it wasn't really like talked about as it was just you know you just get on with it 
Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, you know, and, and the biggest thing was George Michael, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And there was a very cliched, I think there's a very cliched thing of, of being uh, gay and uh, that still exists to a certain extent yeah. now. I, I like to think, though, that th- things are changing. Like, I feel, you know... There's been a lot of campaigning, right? Yeah. Over the last few years. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've had gay marriage come in, which is really, yeah. really, really good. Um, Stonewall have done... You know, they've just released their new strategy and stuff, and, and they've also made uh, made the fact that um, uh, they take the T part of LGBT very, very seriously. You know, which is which is absolutely fantastic as well. Um, so it feels like things are changing, and also just like you think about um, kind of LGBTQI representation in the media and TV, all of that sort of stuff. It's all it's all changing. So I, I like to think that. You know, teenagers now, for example, uh, won't feel, feel like yeah, and can kind of see more people that might represent how they're feeling, like inside, compared to when I was growing up. Like it was quite novel. I like Brookside. The fir- they were the first ones, weren't they? Tough. Yeah, there was a storyline in Brookside, wasn't there? Yeah, they had the first uh, lesbian kiss, and that was like late eighties. So I was a bit too young for that. So that yeah. was, you know, that's not that long ago that yeah, <laughs> that, that happened. Whereas you know, if you think about some of the stuff on like Netflix, for example, at the moment, like sex education, all that, like it's, um, it, uh, it's what, definitely improving. Is that improving. actually an educational program? Oh no, it's like a. It's just a. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't seen it, so I don't. I don't know. Oh, it's just a. Sitcom well, it's, kind of. Yeah, it's like a comedy drama thing, but it's it. You know, it, it kind of represents queer voices really well, and uh, they've. Um, just the way that they've done it, I think it's just really clever, really inclusive, and, and it's a hugely, hugely popular show. Um, that's just one example, but you just... I feel like there's a lot more LGBTQI representation um, more publicly, which, yeah. is, which is fantastic, but uh, still perhaps not where we want it to be. And I do worry that it's a bit of a London-centric thing as well. Really? Well, yeah, because if I think about... Um, uh, so to get, like, the further we, up north you go... Yeah, yeah, and, and I've, but that's such a generalisation. But I think if I think about like even attitudes in the charity sector to like equity, diversity, and inclusion, um, I think th- that isn't necessarily like a universal principle that's adopted as part of like the third sector's kind of way of doing things, and it absolutely should be. But um, the conversations are quite different depending on who you're talking to, the nature of the organisation, and it, it tends to be the London and South East organisations that, that kind of are a little bit um, further along with kind of their approach to kind of EDI compared to others. It's a massive generalisation, but my, my fear is that it's, uh, there's a bit too much variation there. Yeah, I mean, London, de- London tends to be generally quite all-inclusive. There is a lot of people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different beliefs, yeah. and it seems to be uh, a big audience, right? Yeah. In terms of like what goes on and everything else. Um, what uh, I, I mean, even um, there's a lot social media again, but there's a lot more uh, awareness on social media of the LGBTQ community. Um, yeah. A lot more, uh, especially over the last, I think the last 12 months really. Yeah. Like I, I've seen it a lot more than, than it was. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I think you just get to meet new people, you know, through life and like not everyone has to think the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, where I think in some parts of the world, maybe well, it's definitely some parts of England. Everyone, there are certain 
views that just like they'll only look one way and that's it and that's their right way and actually there's a lot more ways than than just one yeah um yeah yeah definitely but it's trying to uh, raise that awareness what uh, similar question to with regards to the charities like what what can uh how do we raise more awareness how do people have these more these more awkward or difficult difficult conversations they're not maybe used to having I think this whole thing about kind of visibility and and and, and being a visible ally uh, is, is just so so important. So particularly for you know if you're an employer or something mm. like that. Um, so you know things like having kind of rainbow tabards on that sort of thing if you're interviewing people or uh, using your own um, kind of communications channels to to kind of share stories of um, of I don't know LGBTQI staff or. or whatever um that can be really really powerful and i think just kind of solidarity is just a really big thing there's some really antiquated stuff though that still exists within public policy like i think it was only till recently that you know it didn't always say mother and father on a on a birth certificate that sort of thing and um so there are there are some kind of basic stuff that needs to change but i think there's a lot that kind of people and organisations can do. Just, I think, the visibility thing and um, just, yeah, being an ally. And also, there's loads of good stuff to watch and read about LGBTQI history and everything. And just, you know, it's good to kind of That's interesting you say that about well. visibility. I think, I think uh, our, the way you said about the website, I think I'm going to look at our website <laughs> and, and, and change something on there. Yeah. Um, because that's, I think that's quite a valid point. I don't think you... You don't. You wouldn't realise unless you saw it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. What are What are the uh, plans for you in terms of where you want the charity to, to go and, and, and also fitness wise? What are the next couple of plans? What will the next six months look like? Uh, so charity wise, um, we definitely want to grow our membership, but but the big thing is we're doing loads of work to kind of understand the impacts of the pandemic on people with neurological conditions. So. We're about to do like a massive survey. We're hoping to get about about ten thousand people to fill, fill it out. Hopefully more, um, and that that's going to be really really important because you know we're going to hope to get lots of lovely media coverage off the back of that, and yeah. um, and and you know get some uh, airtime in Parliament and that sort of thing. So that's kind of the immediate priority. Uh, fitness wise, I mean, definitely going to. Um, continue I, I haven't managed to do a proper pull-up yet that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like, definitely on my list uh and continue to try and improve my double unders as well um but no i think it's going to be uh, the iron man for second half of next year so that might be kind of a bit of um swim coaching that sort of thing um but yeah yeah that and mobility that's definitely always something that i've I've struggled with for quite a long time, so I just, I, yeah, I wanted to continue to improve that. You, you made uh, you made a, a very massive change from when you first started, like over the first three, three, four months. Like you, you were really tuned into food and and, yeah. and, and and training, and you lost quite a bit of weight at the beginning, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a lot to lose, but like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I lost like seven kilos in the first wow. few months, um, and it's basically also because I wasn't, I wasn't being as active as I should be. Um, and my diet was a bit rubbish, you know, especially with work, it's quite stressful sometimes. So I wouldn't kind of plan what I was going to eat and then I'd end up getting like a takeaway uh, take or, or all that kind of stuff. But um, just through the through the plan, like I learned loads about kind of proper nutrition and, and what my macros should be looking at. And, and also just not being scared of the weighing scales. Like 
okay if you put on a bit of weight it's totally fine it's kind of the longer term that yeah, you yeah. know and and also don't be too worried if you're heavier than you thought you would be in that uh it's more about feeling comfortable in yourself yeah um but you know being here and and kind of working through the program and stuff has definitely helped me kind of figure that stuff out and just prioritizing kind of health over aesthetic basically that, yeah. that's kind of been the really really key change um and it's, it's simple enough to do just with a bit of bit of thought really prior to doing that over the years of training had aesthetic been something that you were like more focused on as opposed to the health part yeah yeah not because i'm not kind of out of a vanity thing or anything but just more that i'd be really worried that i uh you know had too bit too much of a belly or like you know my legs were too thick or whatever and and actually that in the long term that really doesn't matter like i want i want to be able to like look after myself for as long as i can you know um and uh, that means putting the investment in now to make sure that, you know, I'm giving my joints the best chance that they have, yeah, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, and all that other stuff. And, and also just, um, like, mentally looking after yourself. It's so rewarding, like, not to, feel, not to feel like crap after, like, drinking too much or whatever, you know. Um, just I prioritise that stuff now far, far more over the over the, the uh, aesthetic stuff for sure I, and I've said a lot of times on the podcast like none of that stuff I think matters if uh, because it's not it's I always say and I'm glad that you said about you know feeling comfortable in your own skin because that's what we try to teach is that actually none of that stuff does really matter it's how you feel about yourself yeah um, and whether you've got a uh, uh, a six pack or not it it doesn't it doesn't matter definitely definitely and I found you know that was clear like from the off when I started coming here that and and the fact that everything is scalable and you know everybody's been super helpful about explaining you know different techniques and and all that sort of stuff is is really really good and I guess I I kind of uh are starting to understand the purpose behind some of this, you know, why you're doing certain yeah, yeah. movements or, or which is you know, music to my ears. Ways. I love that you're saying that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it changes. It changes the whole idea. Of, you know, you're not just getting. You just don't. It's not about just getting exercise done and like just because it's a good thing to do. It's kind of realizing. Oh no, this is part of like a wider strategy yeah, yeah. of just feeling well, kind of mentally and physically, and you know, and that's definitely you've changed my thinking a lot and that's, that's interesting for sure. that's and I, I, that's fascinating and i also wonder if that's connected to the style of work that you do and that's why you maybe view it like that yeah oh yeah yeah i'm sure yeah and and to like with my brother's diagnosis and stuff like um it's you know just make this thing of doing whatever you can to kind of feel better for to feel good as long as you can feel good and like live independently as long as you can live you know yeah. all of that is really really important and it's definitely yeah it's definitely linked to kind of what i hear day to day because yeah you can't really put a price on that stuff yeah exactly georgina we've run out of time for today um it's been a pleasure uh pleasure talking to you um yeah, thank likewise. you for your time and guys and girls we'll see you next week <laughs>